We are thankful for a grace that you grant us that is freely given, that we could never earn or attain, and yet that you grant us sheerly because of your love for us. We're thankful, O oh God, for a hope that you grant us, one that is secure and certain and true. We're thankful for a love that you grant us that is unshakable. We're thankful that even when we wander from you, you never wander from us. We can never leave your grip of grace. And for that incredible love for us, for that grace that you grant us, for the hope we have in Christ, we say thank you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Just one uh, quick announcement as we launch in, but next Sunday is Easter. Um, and as we launch into Easter Sunday, the kids will be uh, performing a kids' musical, I think three numbers next Sunday. So they will be out the entire time. So parents, as you bring them, be here just a few minutes early so they can go downstairs to practice. Then they'll come in and go out for Kingdom Kids, which grants us more room to invite, you know, aunts and uncles or parents and grandparents as part of the musical. The focus of the message, of course, will be on the resurrection. And we invite you to join us next Sunday for Easter. And after the service, there'll be coffee and tea like always but also some snacks uh, for Easter Sunday. We're not doing our brunch because of the complications of trying to figure out brunch in the foyer right now, but we are going to be doing a, uh, an e Easter snacks after the service. What does prayer do? What does prayer do? When you pray, what does it accomplish? I mean, if God is sovereign and has purposely set all things in place, what does prayer actually do? When you pray, what are you able to accomplish? Do you ever wonder that? Have you ever just sat back and wondered, why do I pray? Why should I pray? What does prayer accomplish? What does it do? Is it worthwhile praying? Have you ever just contemplated prayer? I mean, maybe you haven't doubted God's existence of that. Maybe you haven't doubted his activity, but you've just wondered, does prayer do anything? There are times, I shared this a number of weeks ago, when our elders have prayed, when people have come to us, they've been ill in a variety of ways, and there are occasions where I can say, by their testimony, that God has healed them. That they clearly believe on the anointing of oil and prayer that we have seen a healing that God has granted them over the years that I've been here. And then there are times where we've prayed and prayed fervently for people and faithfully, and God hasn't. And God hasn't. I mean, the greatest example of that in my life is Julia Bear, who was 20, uh, came in her 20s to our church with her husband at 26, was diagnosed with cancer, you know, began to blog thousands to tens of thousands into the over hundreds of thousands of people reading her blog as witness and testimony, faithfulness to God. I mean, she was just a school teacher. We had to hold the funeral in a place where 2,000 people could come, wasn't a celebrity of any kind. And God called her home. And I don't know if there's anything, possibly except for my own kid's salvation, if there's anything I've prayed for more diligently and fervently in my entire life than for her healing. So why in some cases can the same group of elders gather and pray and see God move and work and even see what people would testify to as healing? And why in another case... Can we pray more fervently and faithfully than possibly ever before and see nothing? And how does that all fit together? 
as we try to understand God's sovereignty in prayer. How does that all work? One of the things I like to suggest about prayer is this. I, I believe God stands outside of time. He's not a creature of time. I, I believe that we in eternity won't count days the way we count days here, that we will not understand time in the same way. And so I believe that God has chosen to take any of the prayers that we're praying today and weave them into his sovereign plan and purpose. That means that I believe that there are some things that do happen because we've prayed. I believe there are some things that don't happen because we haven't prayed. And I believe that's all part of God's sovereign purpose and plan. I can't account for the calling in Scripture to, prayer, to pray otherwise. I believe that prayer actually does move mountains. I believe that God actually chooses to answer prayer. But let me talk you through a passage that might explain that a bit better than I just have. It's found in Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. We're going through the book of Acts as a congregation. We'll be in Acts until... Basically, the end of summer, we'll end with a prayer gathering around Acts, uh, and, uh, and then we'll launch into a new series in the fall on spiritual warfare. Acts chapter 12, beginning at verse 1, it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handed him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared. A light shone into his cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Peter, get up, he said. And the chains fell off of Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your sandals, your clothes. Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison. He had no idea what the angel was really doing and what was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt the Lord has sent this angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, John Mark. When many people had gathered and were praying, Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named uh, Rhoda came and answered the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening the door and said, Peter's at the door. They're out of their mind, they told her. Maybe they thought she'd been praying too long. When she kept insisting it was so, they said it must be an angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door, they saw him. They were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet, described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become to Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went off from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He'd been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon and 
They joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food. On that appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robe, sat in his throne and delivered a public speech to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to spread and flourish. This is the word of the Lord. There are five Herods that we find in Scripture, two that don't live very long, but three that are prominent. You find Herod the Great. He's the Herod that's king when Jesus is born. So that's Herod the Great. You have Herod Agrippa, who's never named king, but Herod Agrippa is Herod who's in charge when Jesus dies. And then in 33 AD to 44, or 37 AD, sorry, uh, to 44 AD, you have this Herod, Herod Agrippa the first. There's two Herod Agrippas. Um, the second one we see now through the rest of the book of Acts after this Herod dies. And so you have here this Herod, Herod Agrippa, who's married to a Jewish woman. Uh, sorry, his mom, sorry, his dad was married to a Jewish woman, so he's half Jewish. He likes the Jewish people. He honors some of the law, and he likes favor with them. And so this Herod has heard and caught rumor that the people of the Jewish tradition don't like these Christians. And so he has a group of them arrested, the Bible says, and he has James, the brother of John, executed. And so John, sorry, James is killed. Now this is the James of Peter, James, and John, the three that spent a lot of time with Jesus. In Mark 10, you may remember James and John, the apostle, they said to Jesus, Jesus, uh, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. That's quite a statement, isn't it? Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. That's often how we approach God in prayer, isn't it? Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And Jesus says, well, what would you like? What do you want me to do? They said, when you're in the kingdom reigning, we'd like one of us to sit at the left of you, one of us to sit at the right of you. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Will you drink from the cup I'm going to drink from? This is Mark 10. Will you share in the baptism I'm going to be baptized in? They say, we will. He said, indeed you will. But to name one of you to my right and to my left is not for me to give. And then you have James here, the first apostle who's martyred. We've had Stephen's martyrdom. But the first apostle who's martyred here in the book of Acts. And when Herod realizes that people are delighted that it's happened, the Jewish people love it, he arrests more people, including Peter. But it's Passover, so he doesn't want to execute Peter right away because in Jewish custom and culture, you need to wait till after the Passover. So he's going to wait till after the Passover to execute Peter. And because he doesn't want there to be any mistakes, he overguards Peter. He not only has the guards that are there, but he takes two guards and chains them to either side of Peter and then two guards outside of the entrance, four squads of four guards who would continually change through the day so that Peter can't escape. You see, sometimes people want to eliminate God from the equation. The Jewish people at this time, a large group of them, now remember, the apostles are Jewish. The day of Pentecost, it's predominantly Jewish people that are saved. We've just seen 
the gospel go out to the Gentiles. Explained that all last week, the last two weeks. And as it's gone out to the Gentiles, as the gospel has made its way there, there's had to be explanation to the believers as to why God is including and saving those from the Gentile tradition. If you're not Jewish, you are Gentile. So God was saving Jews. Lots of Jews had been saved, but there's a whole group who don't want to believe that Christ is the Messiah. They want to eliminate him from the equation. Thomas Nagel, professor of philosophy and law, says this. I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And that's our world today, isn't it? I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And in that day that we now live in, in the culture that we now find ourselves in, we shouldn't be surprised that there will be persecution. We shouldn't be surprised that it will move from a point in place where we might be mocked for our belief, where people might even ostracize us for what we think, to the point in place where people will be imprisoned for what they believe in Christ. Should not catch us off guard. And are you prepared for that day? The answer is none of us are. But God give us grace on that day when it comes our way. My brother said to me last night, he came down, his family wanted to get some ice cream at the chocolate place on, on James. And so he said, hey, if we come down, is you, are you guys going to come? We're like, of course we will. It's chocolate. And um, so he went for a walk and got some with him. My brother said, I fear the day, he said. He's four years younger than me. And, and he, said, he said, not afraid in the sense of, of I'm terrified of it, but just I know it's coming. When I believe in my lifetime, we will be incarcerated in our culture for the gospel. I mean, you're considered anti-intellectual today for believing in Jesus. Anti-intellectual. So Herod wants to get rid of Jesus. I mean, think of how the tides turn. Deanna talked this morning earlier from the passage about the celebration of Palm Sunday. It's only within a week that the same people that are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna the highest, are crying out, crucify him, crucify him. James had family, mother, John's his brother. I mean, could you imagine John's heart when his brother's executed by Herod? He may have been married, we don't know. The Bible doesn't give account of that. He was in his mid to late 30s, so likely he was married. And of course, there would have been a great deal of heartache when he died. So why did God rescue Peter and not James? I imagine the church was praying for James when he was arrested. I imagine earnestly so. There is only one answer to that question. The sovereign hand of God. While Peter's in prison after James's execution and the church begins to pray earnestly again because the church realizes that God is and specializes in the impossible, that God's able to do that. And so they come praying earnestly for, Jay, uh, for Peter and for his release. They trust that God is able to do this. They believe that he can. And so we need to be a praying people. Paul, on a number of occasions, the apostle tells us to be in prayer. 
the book of Ephesians at the end, I read this a few weeks ago here, but as he finishes off talking about the full armament of God and never names prayer as an armament, he then talks about prayer as that which undergirds all of the armament. And he says, with this in mind, always be in prayer. With all kinds of prayers and requests, he says, come to God and pray about everything. Come to God and bring him everything. Do you pray like that? I mean, did you catch what the church did? They prayed fervently. They prayed faithfully. And they prayed together. Did you catch that? They gathered at John Mark's mom's house. John Mark, who's about to be one of the uh, disciples that will travel with them on the missionary journey, who writes Mark, the Gospel of Mark. Right? That's John Mark, who does that on Peter's behalf. Mark is writing on Peter's behalf. He travels with Peter, likely here when Peter disappears, John Mark is going with him. Because this is the last we see of the Apostle Peter in the book of Acts as he flees. And so John, Mark, probably spending time with him, recording what was being said. But the church is gathered. They're earnestly praying. Do you earnestly pray? Martin Luther says this, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Charles Spurgeon said this, a prayerless church member is a hindrance. He is in the body like a rotting bone or a decayed tooth. Before long, since he does not contribute to the benefit of his brethren, he will actually become a danger and a sorrow to them. Neglect of private prayer is the locust which devours the strength of the church. Is that not powerful? Charles Spurgeon. A prayerless church member is a hindrance. In the body, they are like a rotting bone or a decayed tooth. If you don't believe that's true today, it's likely because you're not someone who prays like that. And you want to justify why you don't right now. So they depend on God. They pray to God. They do so together. Well, while they're praying and they've gathered to pray and they're praying in the house of, of John Mark's mom, which is likely a large house, it looks like from the text that there is this outside gate probably a courtyard, and then the house on the inside of it. An angel of the Lord appears where Peter's in prison. Light is shining, the Bible tells us, in his cell. But Peter is so asleep that the angel actually has to strike him to wake him up. Yo, Peter, I'm here. Peter's that asleep the night before his execution. He knows he's about to be executed. Why is Peter so asleep the night before his execution? I'm sure he's prayed for his release. I'm sure he's asked God to do it, but he's, he's okay with whatever God has sovereignly decided. And James has just died, one of his closest friends. right? Peter, James, and John hung out all the time with Jesus. So one of his closest friends has just been executed. He's not expecting he's going to be released. I mean, so often we pray to God as if God owes us what we asked for. As if it's like a credit card that we put down and tap. And get what we want when we want it. The angel wakes him up. Says put on your clothes and sandals. The, the chains have fallen off his wrists. Peter thinks he's seeing a vision. Wraps his cloak around him. Follows him. Gets out. Passes the first and second guards. Comes to the iron gate. It opens for them. And then the angel's gone. Peter knows the city. He knows where he's going. He knows, he knows that they've gathered at John Mark's house to pray. I mean that's where he goes. Because he knows where the church is gathering. The church has obviously been gathering there. 
I mean, we're probably talking 42, 43 AD, right? So, so this is quite a few years after the Pentecost. The church has been gathering for quite some time. We know that Herod dies in 44. This could be as late as 44 AD. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly how long after this encounter Herod dies, but we know from the accounts of Josephus in history that, that Josephus is a Jewish historian that writes about this time, that Herod dies in 44 AD. It's all accounted for in history as well as in Scripture. Scripture, of course, being our guide. And so Peter goes to the house where he knew they would have gathered to meet with them, and he realized that God has rescued him. Sundar Singh was born in India in 1889, born to a Hindu family. He was converted at 16 years of age. And through his life, he wrote eight books. Um, he journeyed to a number of places to share Christ with people, and he continued to go back to Tibet. Well, one time when he was in Tibet, a Tibetan priest had him arrested. Tibetan priest who also was like the mayor of the area, had Sundar arrested and placed into a dry well, had a seal put on the dry well, and locked with key. And Sundar was left there to die. He was left there to die. Well, one night while he was down in the dry well, he heard the lid open in the middle of the night. When they had lowered them down into the um, well, they had broken his arm, and so his arm was in a great deal of pain. The rope that they lowered down had a hoop in it so he could put his foot in it, so he did have to climb the rope. And from that deep well, he was raised to the top. He got to the top. He went to thank the people who rescued them, and they were gone. And he looked back, and the well was sealed and locked again. And he saw no one. The next day, he went back to the town square, and he began to preach. He began to preach the gospel, and the Tibetan priest demanded that he be brought before him. And so the guards brought him before him, his arm now healed, out of the well. And the Tibetan priest was furious in his anger and rage, asking how he got out. And he said, someone open it up and let me out. He said, he said, I don't know who it was. I never saw them. And as he was raging and upset, like Herod was in this day when Peter was released, he asked who had stolen his key. And the guards said to him, the key is still attached to your waist. And he looked, and there it was. The only key to that lock. In that moment, Sundar realized that God had used an angel to rescue him miraculously. You know, God still does that, don't you? God still does that. We need to be careful. As I say that, James died. Peter is rescued, both by the sovereign hand of our God. So he gets to the house, he knocks on the door in the outer entrance. And you know, you ever been in a prayer meeting and like, in the old days when you'd gather for prayer and there's like a church phone and the phone's ringing during prayer meeting, right? Maybe none of you have ever experienced this, right? Now it's cell phones ringing. And somebody's like, silence the phone or get the phone, right? So knock at the door. And I'm sure they just said to Rhonda, go get the door. You know, she goes to the door. She gets to the door. She's like, who's there? He's like, it's Peter. She recognizes his voice. She's so excited because this is what they've been praying for. This is what they've been asking for, that she leaves him outside the door runs back and is like, Peter's at the door. They're like, no, that's impossible. Like, you've been praying too long. You're delusional. Have a glass of water, right? Like, they, they, in the King, King James Version, they said, you have gone mad. That's what they say, you've gone mad. Now, they're praying for Peter's release, but they know that James was executed. Finally, they say it must be his angel, his guardian angel. Jesus talks about that, right? I'll get into that in the fall. Um, it must be his guardian angel at the door. 
because this isn't possible. But Peter continues to knock, and he's let in, and they're all astonished. The astonishment must have been loud. Like, can you imagine? Like, Peter walks in, and I imagine there was, like, the baptism, a thunderous applause. There was cheering. Woo! God, go, God! And Peter's like, shh. We don't want everyone to know I'm here yet. Right? He quiets them all down. He tells them what God has done. Do you know that God still chooses to work in miraculous ways? Sometimes the miraculous is supernatural. Sometimes it's natural. Sometimes it's supernatural, like the story I just explained from Sundaran. Sometimes God's miraculous ways is through natural means. There are so many stories I was never able to tell through the building of this building because people wanted it quiet till they passed on. And on Friday, I got a call. On Saturday, I got a call yesterday because Harry Vortman passed away. Harry and his brother, Bill, who passed away two years ago, in about three weeks, started Vortman Cookies. Their other brother, John, started Oak Run Bakery. John started Oak Run Bakery, who they've all passed on now into the Lord's presence, after he had retired and built it into a company that sold for over $200 million. So there's still hope, right? Started it after he retired. Um, let's start a business for fun, a hobby. That's what they started, a hobby that turned into one of Canada's larger businesses. Um, and, and the Vortmans, Bill and Harry, they started... Uh, they started Vortman's. And, and I'll never forget, I sat with Bill, told you guys this a couple of years ago, at the Harbor Diner. We walked over here looking at this property. Before we bought it, I was praying for a dollar deal. God, give us a dollar deal. And, and, uh, and, and Bill looked at me and said, listen, we had the money in the bank to buy the building. They wanted $1.3 It was market price. I'm like, God, give us a deal. And, and they weren't budging. And Bill smiled at me and he said, he said, don't ask God to do something for you that he's already done. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, he's already given you the money. Buy the building. And I'll donate too. And then he said, I'm going to do something I've never done before. I'm going to introduce you to my brothers. We have an agreement over the years that we would never introduce to each other donors. And I remember meeting with Harry Bortman. Bill, Bill would come and meet with me and he would have just gotten off the horses. And Harry was always impeccably dressed in a custom-made suit. Bill had stopped running Bortman's a few years ago to retire, and Harry ran it until just a few years ago. I remember going to Harry's office one day, and the first time I met with Harry, Harry said, our foundation doesn't give to local churches. Because if we did that, every, this was what I heard from every donor, pretty much, every philanthropist. Because if we did that, there's so many churches, thousands upon thousands of churches in Canada that could ask for money. And so we typically only give to, you know, nationwide charities or international charities. And yet God softened their hearts. And I remember when Harry wrote his first check, and then uh, uh, this is how it kind of went down. I'd met with him a couple of times. He said, can you drop off for me some material from your church, a couple of sermons you've preached in large forums uh, that are recorded, like People's Church Toronto and, and uh, Promise Keepers Canada and Jesus and Nations, whatever it is, and, and just drop off some of these things, some materials. And so I did. But I had the twins with me. Jewel and Ivy were like five. I went up to his office. I wasn't dressed to see Harry. I'm just supposed to drop it off, right? I'm dressed probably like this. And I go in, and I, I, uh, I, I have the twins with me, and the receptionist is like, hey, we have fresh-baked Bortman cookies here. Would your girls like one? And, of course, Jewel and I were like, sure. And she says, Harry loves kids. Can, can Harry come meet them? I'm like, sure. So Harry comes out, and he gets right down, this 80-year-old guy, 82-year-old guy, and he, he's talking to Jewel and Ivy, and he's welcoming. He says, would you girls like some cookies? And they said, oh, thank you, sir. They said, we already had one. He said, no, no, no. He said, would you like more cookies? And they said, 
Yes. And he brings out these containers of Fortman cookies, but not just one. He gives one to Ivy, and it's almost as big as, do you remember this? Big, big container. And then he gets one for Jewel, and they're just wide-eyed, and they're so excited. And I'm like, oh, sugar rush. And, um, and so we go home, and about three weeks later, this is in November, Harry's parked outside of La Una Station with a massive tractor trailer. It's, it's, it's three o'clock, and they have had their Christmas lunch in there. And he's at the back of the truck handing out gifts to all the employees. And I see him. And I say to the girls, can we walk over and say hi to Mr. Vortman? They're like, sure. So we walk over. We see him. He's standing there handing out these gifts. And I say, Harry, how are you? He says, I'm really good. And uh, he, he, again, gets right down and says hi to the girls. How are you? And Ivy reaches over to him, grabs a hold of him, hugs him, and says, Mr. Vortman, you make the best cookies. <laughs> and he wrote us a check the next week. It was a great moment in life. Um, I don't know to this day whether it was Ivy or not. And then he wrote another check. He wrote a check larger he'd ever written to us. And then finally, we were in one of those moments where the building had gone up again and we needed 630,000. I'm walking through because Harry had, had some uh, dementia in his, or I don't know if it's dementia or Alzheimer's, but in his, his later years and, and uh, the last couple of years. And we're walking through with the gentleman, godly man, who kind of looks after everything. And, and uh, we're walking through the building and we're explaining what we need. And Harry was awesome. He looked at me and said, just write him a check for whatever he has asked for. And then that moment you wish you'd ask for more, but it's fine. And, and, and you just watch the God, God provide. And, and sometimes his provision is through natural means. A godly man that he's granted wealth to, that God's going to use to release it to see this building built. I mean, a $22 million building with $21 million provided for, that is nothing but the miraculous hand of God. And it's been hundreds and hundreds of people, including us here, who've given sacrificially and faithfully. And it's included people like him. And sometimes God chooses in the miraculous to do it supernaturally, like in the case of Peter or Sundar. Well, they're, they're, they're shocked that this has happened. Herod can't believe it. Verse 19, he makes a thorough search. He cannot find him. He cross-examines every guard because he can't believe that God could do this. There must be a natural explanation. There has to be an inside job. The guards have to have done this, and he has the guards executed. But then he goes to Caesarea. We're not told when, but we know this is shortly after. Is it a year? Is it two? Is it six months? We don't know. There had been a quarrel going on. The people there had gathered to them this gentleman named Blastus on their side to advocate on behalf of King Herod because they needed the food that was being produced um, and, and, and it was no longer be, being sent because of this quarrel. On the day Herod addresses everyone, you can read this in the, uh, Josephus and his Antiquities as well. The people address him. He's glittering, it would say. Josephus says his Antiquities. He's glittering. And the people begin to shout out, this is the voice of a God, not a man. Immediately, God strikes Herod down because Herod doesn't say, give praise to God. He's eaten by worms and he dies. That's probably an intestinal disease. In the works of Josephus, it says he dies within five days. Here it doesn't say he died immediately. We don't know how long he died. And, and even Josephus said, this was only the act of God himself. But this is where a prayerless life will lead you. Josephus is given, not Josephus, sorry, Herod is given praise, and instead of turning that praise to God, he accepts it for himself as if he is God, as if it's his talent or his ability or his gifting. So what do we do? Just a few things. 
I want you to know verse 24. The word of God continued to spread and flourish. Number one, three things. We're going to face persecution. We've already faced it, but with increasing measure, unless God chooses to revive our land, we're going to face persecution. It's already illegal. You know that, right? We've been talking about church family. To share the gospel now in some circumstances in our culture. It's now illegal in our culture, in Kenda, right now, to share the gospel in some circumstances. If you don't know that, I don't know where you've been the last few months. It's embedded within the section of the criminal code with child pornography, and it's up to five years imprisonment. So what does that mean for us? Right? We need to be ready, and sometimes some of us might be like James. And some of us might be like Peter. There may be some of us that are persecuted to the point where we face imprisonment and death. And there may be some of us who are persecuted and freed. God chooses to free us. But are you praying to God as that day comes? Secondly, God will judge his enemies. God will judge his enemies. If it doesn't happen here, it will happen on the judgment day. God will vindicate every wrong. Is that not good news? You can trust the just judge. He will look after it all on that day. God will vindicate all. And he will judge all that need to be judged. Number three. The word of God will spread and it will flourish. Listen to this from Hebrews 4. For the word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Listen to this from Isaiah 55. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, but do not return to it without watering the earth and make it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty. It will accomplish what I desire. It will achieve the purpose for which I sent it. So when the Bolsheviks took over Russia, what was then the Russian Empire, and founded the Soviet Union, back in 1922, what did they do? They abolished Christianity. They created statewide teaching on atheism. And a hundred years later, there are over two million evangelical people worshiping and celebrating God in Russia to this day. Six years ago, I met a man when I was at a conference from Russia, a Russian leader. He had a church that had grown to 400. The first, I've told this before. The first week uh, uh, um, um, th that the secret police showed up, they show up and they take the names of everyone coming in. The second week again, they take the names of everyone coming in. The third week they come, the people come, and the church has been boarded up. And they're told they're not allowed to enter. And if they do enter, now they'll be persecuted and they'll be in prison. I said to the pastor, what did you do? He said, we split up into groups of 100, four groups of 100. I said, when did that happen? He said, about seven weeks ago. I said, what's going on now? He said, all the churches are about 400 each. Because everyone heard about what was happening. This is six years ago. What was happening to us in persecution? And they saw our faith and we've grown. So he said, now we're about to take that 1,600 people 
and split them into six churches. Uh, sorry, 16 churches. And see what God does there. You know God's able to do that? Do you know he's that powerful? When the public, uh, Repub People's Republic of China was formed in 1912, just 10 years before the Soviet Union, the government again went to eliminate Christianity. In 1949, it was estimated that there was one million evangelical Christians in China. And through all of the opposition, and through all of the persecution, the estimates today would put the evangelical church in China at about 80 million to, some would say, 100 million believers. 80 million. That's more than double the size of our country. Why? 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 Because the word of the Lord continues to spread and flourish. Is that not good news? He is an unstoppable God. He is an unstoppable God. Satan could not stop him. Sin could not stop him. Death could not stop him. All of the power that the principalities and authorities threw at him could not stop him. And his word, the living word, right? That's Jesus. He was the spoken word. That's what the word tells us, right? Who became the living word. That's John 1. The spoken word who is the living word is alive now and forevermore as king of kings and lord of lords. And he walks with you to the very end of the age. It is great, great news. That is our God. Jason, you guys can come up. Persecution will come. God will judge his enemies. The word of the Lord will last forever. Amen? I read to you briefly from Isaiah 55 as we worship our God in song. I want you to hear the context of Isaiah 55. Would you stand with me? This is what Isaiah 55 says about the word of God. Hear it in its context. It is beautiful given our baptisms this morning. Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come and buy and eat. Come and buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread? Why do you labor for that which will not satisfy? Listen, listen, eat what is good. Delight in the richest affair. Give here and come. Listen, that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My covenant love that was promised to King David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples. He is a ruler, a commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations uh, you know not, and nations you do not know will come to you. Because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, he has endowed you with splendor. So seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord. He will have mercy on them. And to our God he will freely pardon for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, my ways are higher than yours. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it, but make it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, my word that goes out from my mouth will never return to me empty. It will accomplish what I desire. It will achieve the purpose for which I sent it. So you will go out with joy. You will be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst in song before you. And the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper. Instead of the briars, the myrtle will grow. 
This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. He is a good God. We pray, believing in his sovereign hand. We live, trusting him with every step. We know that one day he will judge all that stand in opposition to him. And we're thankful that his word, his word will last forever.